Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Good morning, church. For those that who don't know me, my name is Chris Reeve. I'm one of the elders here. This morning, we are going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 21. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, and uh, if you have kids and are going to be taking them to the children's ministry, you can go ahead and do that while everyone's turning to this week's passage. All right, so I'll go ahead and read this, and then I'll pray and ask as we do every week for the Lord's help. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. Father, we just, we surrender our hearts to you this morning. The enemy would love nothing more than to steal the truth of your word from us this morning. So we ask that you protect everything that I say. May I say nothing that's not true of you. And I ask that you open the hearts and the minds and the ears and the eyes of those that are here today so that they might receive what you would have for them today. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I often tell my 14-year-old daughter, Hannah, to not be influenced by people that are of the world. Instead, I encourage her to try to be a godly influence on others. Just one person's influence or actions can have a huge impact on another person or a group of people. They can sometimes have influences that last generations and they have lifetime consequences, and important, more importantly, sometimes they have eternal consequences. We don't often think of the actions or the decisions we make that can potentially have eternal consequences, but they often do. Now, one particular decision made with regards to adoption that has had an effect on my life was essentially both of my parents were adopted. Now, while I don't know too much about my mom's side of the family, I do know quite a bit about my dad's side of the family. And it's really a pretty fascinating story, and I think you'll kind of see where uh, God was kind of working through that situation to kind of affect my family for eternity. So it kind of starts with my biological great-grandparents and my dad's biological grandparents. Their names are... Uh, Albert and Ometa. Now, Albert died in a car accident, an automobile accident in 1924. 
He was just 30 years old when he died. And he left behind four children that were ages two to nine years old. But beyond that, he also left behind a pregnant wife who just a few months later would give birth to their fifth child. Now, nine years later, at the height of the Great Depression in 1933, family tragedy would strike again. The family had just finished going to a church revival, and Ometa and her family, they were standing in the doorway of the church when, believe it or not, lightning struck and hit Ometa and killed her instantly in front of her five children. The youngest was nine years old. The oldest daughter, Dorothy, was 17. The oldest son, Olive, who was my dad's biological dad, was just 15 years old. In an instant, they, they had no parents. Now, the five kids would go and live with an aunt and uncle who already had 11 kids of their own. Now, again, this was during the Great Depression. So you're talking about going from a family of 11 kids to 16. Definitely deserve a medal for that one. Um, now, the oldest, Dorothy and Olive, they would kind of take different paths in life. Dorothy was more of a straight-laced kind of person. She didn't really believe in breaking too many rules and never really got into a whole lot of trouble. Now, Olive, on the other hand, he kind of fell into the wrong crowd and, and people made an influence on him that was definitely not positive. Now, Olive ended up getting involved in a large moonshine operation and he became an alcoholic as well. Then in 1938, Olive married a 15-year-old girl named Jessie who had gotten pregnant. The couple had their first daughter later that year, and then in 1940, my father was born. Shortly after he was born, Olive went to prison. He was in prison for a year. So just to kind of paint the picture here, you have a, at this point, 18-year-old mother with two kids, and her husband is in prison. He gets out of prison, they end up having two more children, and after the fourth child was born late in 1943, she abandoned the family. She was 21 years old, she left the family, and left Olive with four kids to take care of. Olive was unable to do it, he just, he couldn't do it. Um, I don't know what circumstances led to him not being able to do it, but he was unable to do it. So the, the four kids ended up being put into an orphanage. Meanwhile, Dorothy, his sister, had met a Navy man named Harold Shreve. He met him on a bus in North Carolina in 1941. They had a brief courtship. They got married a couple months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And as Harold was preparing to go serve his country in the Pacific on the USS Lexington, the couple decided to get the four kids out of the orphanage. While serving in the Pacific Theater during the war, Harold would often preach God's word to the other people that were on the ship. Having returned to the States after the war, Harold and Dorothy finalized the adoption for the four kids. Now, even though Olive had given up his parental rights, he would follow the family around. He moved wherever they went. He was trying to continue to be a part of their lives. 
The only, diff- the only time that he was not able to do that is in 1954, he was actually convicted of second-degree murder when he stabbed his landlord over a rental dispute. So in case you're wondering how this all impacted my life, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. My dad tended to kind of go more the way of my grandpa Olive instead of my grandpa Harold. So we never really talked about Jesus in my house. Christmas was more of a celebratory time with family, food. Jesus was barely mentioned as far as my parents were concerned. Now, my grandfather, on the other hand, you know, he would kind of do the opposite. He was always talking about Christ. And he was, I didn't know it at the time, but he was a very good influence on me. And God was starting to plant seeds into my life. We would go over to their house in Cary, and often I would see him praying, reading his Bible, preparing a sermon. He was an itinerant preacher. I would see these things, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was making a lasting impression on me that I had no idea it was even happening. Now, speaking of prayer, I did not know this until... Uh, a few years ago when my brother passed away, I was on a trip with one of my cousins. We were going down to South Carolina for his funeral, and she had actually lived with my grandparents. And she told me that my grandfather prayed for everyone in his family that had not been saved every single day. And that includes me. Now, little did I know at the time, but I was turning out a lot like my grandpa, Olive. I abused alcohol. I abused drugs. I sold drugs. I got arrested for possession of drugs. I was self-destructing. I didn't care, just going through life, just feeding my flesh. I wasn't pursuing Jesus. I was I was chasing after sin. I wanted to feed my flesh. I had no idea what I was missing at the time. Now, I really love Ephesians in chapter 2 because it, in the beginning, it, it gives you an idea of the person before Christ and the person after Christ. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now look with me at the end of verse, at verse 3 there. It describes all of mankind, and it says... By nature, all of mankind were children of wrath. All of mankind are by nature children of wrath and are born with a sin nature. And we see evidence of that in Romans 5, verse 12. That says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, 
Sin came into the world because of one man, Adam. And many of you are familiar with that story where God created Adam, God planted the garden in Eden, uh, sprung up trees there, told Adam, you can eat of any of these trees, just do not eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do that, you'll die. And then eventually, uh, Eve, was, Eve was created as a helpmate, and here comes crafty, 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 Mr. Crafty, the serpent. And he says to Eve, surely God didn't say you couldn't eat of these trees, of, of all of these trees. And she said, well, he said, you know, we could eat of all of them but this one that we couldn't eat of that one, or we would die. And then uh, Satan questioned her, surely you won't die, because God knows as soon as you do that, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be just like God. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. So Eve, seeing that the fruit was good and uh, that it was pleasurable to the eyes and that she could have this knowledge of God, she eats of the fruit. She was deceived and ate of the fruit. Then she gives some to Adam and Adam eats of the fruit in complete rebellion to God. A lot of things have not changed since then. Our own wicked hearts desire to rebel against God. We desire in our own wickedness to be our own gods. Now remember what it said in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now is work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, two of the most hope-inspiring words in the Bible, but God. If you're feeling lost, but God, if you're feeling depressed, but God, if you feel you have no hope, but God, when you feel like you are being crushed under the weight of your own sin and you cannot breathe, but God, it gives us hope. It gives us hope that we ordinarily would not have. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that you have been saved. It is only by grace. Now we've seen how sin came into the world and how everyone, everyone is born with a sin nature and how just one person can have a significant impact or effect on another person's life or on their eternity. 
Like I said, my grandfather had a huge impact on my life. There was a time I was extremely ashamed of who I once was. I'm still ashamed of that person. But God's grace is greater than that sin. And I'm not that person anymore. God is doing a work in me. Now, before we turn and look at our passage this morning, I want to take a minute to kind of give some background on 2 Corinthians. As we, are, as we usually do here, we, we typically teach uh, a book by book, line by line in the Bible. We're doing a little bit different this morning, so I kind of want to give some background on 2 Corinthians. So Paul has established a church in Corinth, and he goes about his journey, his missionary journey. He goes, I think it's to Ephesus. And, but then he gets word that things are not good. Things are starting to kind of unravel a little bit in the church. So he writes a letter to the church of Corinth, and we see that kind of referenced in, in 1 Corinthians. Then he goes about his journey. He goes about continuing to do his ministry work. And he gets word again that, hey, things are getting worse. Things are not good. There's a lot of sin going on. There are divisions in the church. There's sexual immorality. People are suing each other. So then he ultimately writes what we know as 1 Corinthians. That's his second letter. Things continue to progressively get worse. At this point, you have false apostles that are kind of popping up in the church. Uh, they're teaching wrong things, and they're also turning people against Paul. They're, they're uh, questioning his leadership. They're quest questioning his apostleship. They are basically looking at external things for him, and they look at him, and, and just to be blunt, uh, Paul was not a very attractive person is what we believe. Um, he wasn't a very good public speaker. He was poor. He um, was persecuted. He was under, uh, he endured immense suffering. So people were kind of looking at him, well, surely this guy can't be an apostle for Jesus Christ. Surely he can't be. And you had other people in the church who maybe had a little more eloquent speech and things like that, and that but they were teaching the wrong things. Now, ultimately, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? You, it, it doesn't matter what you look like, and it doesn't matter how you speak, but it matters, are you pointing people to Jesus? And that's something that Paul was doing. That was part of his ministry. Now, 2 Corinthians was written, um, the, the church there, a lot of the people had kind of repented, and they started trusting Paul and his leadership and his apostleship. But not everyone was trusting at that point. So he wrote 2 Corinthians, which is essentially him defending his leadership and his apostleship. A lot of it is that, where he's defending that. And um, so we are going to go to that passage now. I've got four points that I want to draw out this morning. Number one, 
Those who are in Christ are a new creation. Number two, this new creation or new life is a gift of God. Number three, God justifies and reconciles sinners. And number four, we are ambassadors for Christ. So point number one, those who are in Christ are a new creation. Look with me at verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ speaks of salvation. It speaks to a redemptive spiritual transformation where generation has taken place in the center. Their heart of stone is removed and they are given a heart of flesh. They are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. They respond in faith to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They repent or turn from their sin, and they no longer stand before God guilty of their sins, but instead, the righteousness of God has been imputed to them. Being in Christ means that you have the same standing before God, the same righteousness of Christ that is given to you because of his finished redemptive work. If you are in Christ, you have been saved. If you are in Christ, you have been redeemed. You are no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old things you once valued, your old beliefs, the things you once prioritized, the things of the world become less important to you. Other things take priority in your life. You now focus less on temporal things and more on things that are eternal. The person who is in Christ is a new creation and no longer pursues sin and the things of the world but they pursue Jesus. Your desire to feed and satisfy your flesh is replaced with a desire to feed and satisfy your soul. You now hunger for God's word. You live a life of prayer. You have fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for Christ. You have been redeemed. Now, this doesn't mean that someone who is in Christ is, is perfect and without sin. That only comes in eternity with what we call glorification. Glorification is when we get our new resur resurrected, glorified bodies. And in that moment, there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more disease, no more addictions, no more temptation. There'll be no more sin, which I just cannot wrap my mind around, that there will be no more sin. And there'll be no more death. We will live for eternity in perfection. 
So we'll wrap up what it means to be in Christ by reading what it says in Romans 8, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have been freed from the bondage of sin and death. You have been redeemed from that. Now, point number two, this new creation or new life is a gift of God. Look at verse 18 with me. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this that we have just talked about, this new life, this redemption that we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ, everything having to do with salvation is totally a gift from God. It can't be bought. There's nothing you can do to work and obtain it. It is a free gift by God's grace for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is just an unimaginable gift that he offers to us. Now, when we were given this great gift of salvation, the end of verse 18 says that God gives us the ministry of reconciliation. For the believer, salvation is not the end. It is only the beginning. There is a reason you are still here on this earth. God did not save you and keep you here for no reason. The reason we are still here on this earth is to proclaim the message of reconciliation. That is what we're here for. That is what we are called to do. So what is this message of reconciliation? It's the good news. It's the gospel. In verse 18, we learn that all aspects of salvation are a gift of God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, Let me just repeat that one again. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, the reason I put an emphasis on not counting their trespasses against them is that kind of takes us into um, point number three. God justifies and reconciles sinners. Romans 3, verses 23 through 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You are justified by grace as a gift. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. 
It is a work of God in your life. It is a work of the Holy Spirit working in you to bring you to salvation. This is the wonderful doctrine of justification. So what exactly is justification? Justification is when God imputes divine righteousness to the sinner. Even though he's guilty by his actions, he's guilty in the sins that he's actually committed. His faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ give him a standing of not guilty and declared as though he had never sinned. It's such an incredible gift to imagine. And when you think about justification, so when, when someone is saved, they are instantly justified, made in right standing. Their sin is no longer counted against them. Then they go through the process of sanctification where they are set apart and they are becoming uh, more and more like Jesus. And those are all great things, but think about glorification. When we actually become perfect. It's the last act of grace that God will have on us. It, the, the grace will, it will be ongoing, but the act of that grace will be completed. We will be perfect. No more sin. Now, the bad news is that our sin deserves death, but the good news is that Jesus already paid the price for that sin with his very death on the cross. Our fourth and final point is that we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What a high calling this is for all believers. We are official ambassadors for Christ, tasked with pleading on his behalf to be reconciled to God. He has given us that just honor and pleasure to do that. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and he has given us the message of reconciliation. Now, friends, if this seems like an urgent message, it is. It is extremely urgent. In case you were wondering what happened to Olive, my biological grandfather, he and his wife were in Florida turning into a gas station to get gas and a semi-truck hit them. Killed both of them instantly, right there on the scene. Now, unless they made a profession that no one in our family ever heard of, they died in their sins. People die in their sins every single day. You have family members, you have neighbors, you have coworkers. You have people that you see at the grocery store. People at banks. Your mail carrier. Your kids, sports coaches. 
They're all just going through life, not understanding the death sentence that lies ahead of them. It only takes one person to significantly impact another and possibly change their eternity. Brothers and sisters, you are that one person. You are that one person. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation for this purpose. You have been called to a high calling. It is to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. Now, as I told you, my grandfather had a huge impact on me. And one story that I remember that, that I like to share with people is they, they always had this garden. And whenever the grandkids would go over there, they put us to work. There was always something to pick, something to shuck, something to, to shell, something to snap. There was always something to do. One day, I was 10. This will kind of show you just how goofy I was. I was 10 years old, kind of tired of doing this. And I asked my grandfather, I said, Grandpa, why don't you just buy this stuff at the store like everybody else? <laughs> and he looked at me with this quizzical look. And he said, well, first of all, it doesn't taste as good. And second of all, he knew that if he planted something in that ground, he could depend on God to provide food for him. It was his way of reminding himself that God is his provider. So in case you're wondering about my own personal testimony, as far as how I came to Christ, it was a long process. I was very fortunate, though I didn't have that in my home, God planted people. He was constantly planting those one, one person, one people. He kept doing it. Didn't really realize it at the time. It, it would be people at work that were Christians, people that I kind of made fun of, actually. But he was placing those people. He placed my adoptive grandfather in my life to plant seeds towards my salvation. And then ultimately, I had a son when I was 23 years old. And at the time, I was still living crazy. I was out of control. And in that moment, it was no longer just about me. There was someone else to take care of. But I didn't really have the greatest father as far as teaching me things and definitely not teaching me godly things and pointing me to Jesus and things like that. So I kind of did the best that I could. Um, was kind of going more on world's values than God's values. But again, slowly but surely, God brought me along and I realized my values need to come from somewhere else. My values need to come from what God says. Ultimately, I gave my life to Christ. I became a new creation. 
Now, for those here today or that might be watching on live stream, if you're in Christ already, praise him. Show him the love and adoration that he rightfully deserves because it is the greatest gift you can have. If you're not in Christ, if you're still in Adam, I plead with you, turn from your sins and turn to Jesus. Have faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be reconciled to God. Jesus took the full punishment for your sins. It doesn't matter what you've done. He took all of it. He lived a perfect, sinless life and took the full wrath that we deserved. He died on a cross, was buried, raised to life again on the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We have forgiveness in that very gospel message. You just need to put your faith in Christ. Now, the last verse in our passage today, verse 21, is a perfect way to close. It's the perfect picture of substitutionary atonement. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One man, Adam, brought sin into the world. But one man, Jesus, God in the flesh, brought a way to be redeemed from that sin. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that none of us here are what we used to be. If we put our faith in Christ, none of us are what we used to be. You have made us a new creation. And we praise you with all adoration this morning. It's not something we deserve. It's a gracious gift that you have given us. Father, I pray for those that might hear this message and have not turned their life to Christ yet. I pray that you will work on their hearts, that you soften their hearts, that they see the sin in their lives and that they see their need for a savior. We pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.